Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the CPT Podcast. We are reconvening as the CPT staff for one of our fabled books we've been reading episodes. Uh, we have let this drop a little bit. We've had a few things going on uh, here at the CPT that we're excited to share about. We have shared about a little bit, uh, but lots of fun stuff going on. But trying to get back on the podcast horse, such as it is. Uh, so here we are. We're going to talk about in a round robin sort of way, uh, books that each of the four of us have been reading. I'll introduce everybody in just a sec. So if you've uh, listened to an episode like this before, you know what's coming. We don't unfortunately have a CPT fellow joining us uh, for the conversation, but we'll get back to that in the future as well. So I am joined today by president of the CPT, Todd. Good to have you. Oh no, Todd's muted. Hey, great to great to there, see you, Zach. There. Sorry about the the mute. No, we're, right we're right back on that podcast. Right there, 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 there it is. All right, and uh, executive director of the CPT, Joel Lawrence. Joel, great to have Hello. you. Hello, well. can, uh, can you hear me? Am I? I sure can. Sure. Can. Okay. Good. Good. And yeah, good, then good uh, CPT managing director Ray Paul. Hello, Ray. Hey, y'all. Okay. Well, we're just going to get right to it. I am. I suppose I'll just kick us off if that's all right Go with everybody it. else. A book that I recently read um, that I think is just really culturally relevant, but also relevant to lots of conversations in the church. And folks who listen may know that this has been a bit of an interest of mine as well. Uh, has to do with men and masculinity, and it is the book of Boys and Men why the modern male is struggling, why it matters, mm. and what to do about it. And Man. it's written by a uh, uh, British economist, Richard Reeves, who uh, has lived in the U.S. for some time. So like many of, the, many of these kind of sociological economic books or politics books, I feel like there's a whole genre of books that just bounces back and forth between the U.K. and the U.S. in terms of the data yes. that it selects. And yes. uh, this is definitely one of those. Uh, but this is a really fascinating, um, sobering, but also a, a refreshing book, I would say. It's a book that kind of um, gathers together a ton of this data on the quote-unquote masculinity crisis. And I think when you see all the data in one place, yes. it's very clear to say, yes, this is a crisis. This isn't overblown. This isn't just one kind of political persuasion, making a bunch of hysteria about nothing. This is actually really serious. Um, when you look at things like deaths of despair or educational outcomes or college entrance and behavioral this and that and the other thing. Um, Zach, sorry to put you ahead. on the spot. Do you have any like just quick on some of those statistics? Do, do, you, uh, do you like deaths striking- of despair amongst men versus women that, that, kind of thing i'd love to get a little color to that if oh you gosh i should have prepared better so now here i am four, through men, this men are four times more likely to commit suicide 90 yes. percent of aggressive behavior in terms of homicides and violent crimes are committed by men i mean and i think um, homicides are something like 70 97 percent or something yeah like yeah that. and I mean, is you know, that is that Something that has has grown like that that gap has grown over the last say 10, well, 20, I'm 30 not sure, years. I'm not sure about the violent crime. I think that's just kind of always been the case. Yeah. But deaths of despair have spiked in particular yeah. for men, and deaths of so that's a real sign of yes. this crisis of, that is being yeah. addressed. Yeah. For folks who might not be familiar with that terminology, um, 
the deaths of despair refer to suicides as well as deaths uh, due to uh, like alcohol, liver disease, as well as overdoses. So it's substance and and then suicide deaths. Um, is he identifying that by generation as well? I mean, is he identifying there's a specific demographic that is this is is coming from? Yes, there are you know plenty of data that break things down by by generation. And the point really to answer your question, Joel, we'll see if I I'm trying to find the one about college entrance um, because that is really, really striking and I don't want to misquote the data on that. but um, the point, for the thesis of the book is that it's not that men are kind of in this constant state of underperforming relative to women in education like that. It's over the past or in recent decades, there has been a serious trend towards the negative on yeah. all sorts of metrics for men and boys. And, um, Oh gosh. Okay. Degree. <clears throat> this is one here. Here's one. So degrees, awarded to women for every hundred awarded for men. Oh gosh. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to interpret this chart on the fly. Um, (laughs) So in the U S 57% of bachelor's degrees are now awarded to women and not just um, in the stereotypical female subjects, um, but 57% overall, which means that, you know, obviously only 43% are being awarded to men. And I think the punchline of that, of those data is that, um, you know, in 1980, it was the reverse. So there was a concerted effort, you know, on all sorts of policies and things like that to get more women into higher education, more women into various fields. But that goal has in many ways been accomplished, Reeves argues. But while we've been so focused on women's liberation and women's education and things like this, uh, we have obscured the fact that men are not just kind of staying at the same level, but actually slipping significantly. Um, so yeah, that's, sorry, I wasn't able to kind of rattle off the, no, the that's, that's helpful. <laughs> and I that's, think it's, that's, that's the thesis. In, in my understanding, right. Reeves is a, he's not coming from a, of faith perspective. He's not looking at this no, from kind no. of a religious viewpoint. He's looking at this from statistical analysis yep. and, and what he is seeing is, is happening in the culture of, of, the, of the West with yep. men and boys. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he has a couple chapters towards the middle of the book that kind of he, a lot of policy proposals and suggestions towards the end, but a couple chapters in the middle where he critiques the disposition, you know, generally speaking of the left towards men, and then also critiques the disposition politically of the right towards men and the left, the kind of main critique is that, you know, they're so high up on women's issues that, any sort of rhetoric that highlights the ways men are struggling or suggestion of programs to help men and boys out is seen as threatening and kind of outside of what is considered appropriate um, in terms of policy governance and things like that. You know, you don't help the privileged because they're privileged. Um, But the argument is that uh, men actually rapidly will become 
interestingly, you could also say uh, disadvantaged relative to women if the patterns uh, if the pattern continues, and then um, and then just also d- denying and downplaying um, patterns of behavior, biological differences between men and women. Uh, he views that as pretty unhelpful and something that the left falls into regularly. And on, on the right, there's kind of this nostalgia for a bygone era, kind of pre-sexual revolution, pre-industrial revolution, pre-technological revolution. Um, wouldn't it be better for men if we just made everything the way it was in the 1950s? And you just can't do that. He argues like there's no turning back the clock. And so much of the rhetoric on the right is just kind of about turning back the clock. So I know this kind of masculinity conversation is something that a lot of Christians are thinking about and a lot of pastors are thinking about um, just in the way they teach about, uh, you know, gender and identity and sexuality, but also in, you know, how they're pastoring um, men in their church who may be struggling in all sorts of ways. Uh, This is a really, really worthwhile read. Um, so I think I will leave it there, um, and kind of get to what other people are Great. reading, but, uh, strongly, uh, strongly recommend, uh, of boys and men, uh, by Richard Reeves. That's great. All right, Ray, what do you, what do you got for us? Uh, I am going to share Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which is an older book, uh, 2006 novel. Nice. It's that recent. I thought it was older than that. It is that recent. I, have been impressed because I read it a number of years ago and then just reread it in sort of a series. I've inadvertently read a number of dystopian novels back to back and it just still highlights what he's doing in some ways that other authors can't. Um, He, Mm. it's the story of a father and a son set in sort of a destroyed, it's implied it's in the States in this destroyed landscape as they're traveling across the country, attempting to, find it's not really defined as if there's a sanctuary at the end or there's some kind of uh, tangible hope. They're trying to get to the coast is what it's implied. They're trying to get some kind of shelter. And it's, it's a fascinating narrative in that there's not a lot that's, there's not, uh, not a lot that's necessarily occurring as they're traveling. There's some brief moments of pretty intense violence or hinted at as the the country has collapsed as there's no more natural resources. Um, and as the worst of humanity comes out, there's it's there's cannibalism, there's the, the marauders, there's, but it's in very, very brief moments that it occurs. If at mm. all, it's more hinted at. Mm. And it's, it's fascinating on a couple levels. One is his writing style is first of all, it's beautiful. It's the kind of book where, you'll run across a word that's not commonly used. And if you were to go look up that word, you'd realize he couldn't have chosen anything else to exactly describe that moment, uh, which is pretty remarkable. And at the same time, on a second level, it's this question of what does hope look like when Mm -hmm. there's no realistic end, when most things along the way actually are attempting to defeat that. And when all of the the resources that you would assume uh, shore up this kind of hope, is missing, whether it's relational, whether it's even just the ability to have supplies. So I had I actually used it for the church book club that I run here at Calvary. And it was just a, a very interesting conversation of how does one actually build hope without wow. a proper end and what that looks like, especially when it's a father and a son who's his, there's a few flashback moments where it's clear that his wife 
left essentially saying nothing is ever going to get better. We are better choosing our own exit in this life than we are trying to fight for something that actually doesn't exist. Wow. So it's, it's a fascinating narrative of the father's reason to have hope in many ways is his son. But at the same time, what gives the son hope knowing that at some point his father will die. There's this constant threat of violence at some point, even the leftover supplies of prior generations or survivors won't be there either. And there's this, they get to the coast and there's nothing there as much as there is anywhere else. So then the question ongoing is where is this, this sense of sanctuary? So it's, it's incredibly well done uh, as, and I still stands out to me even within the dystopian genre. Ray, who, who, who participates in that book club? Like, is it, does it span the generations? And I'm, I'm curious how it landed with, with the folks who were reading it. Well, it's, it is a generations. I mean, we've got, I'm trying to think early 20 or mid twenties to retiree in it. Mm. Uh, It's a small group. It's also interesting because not everyone in the group is believers. Oh wow! So that also creates a pretty interesting conversation of, on a practical level, the anch- the hope anchors for yeah. a non-believer are those yeah. generally are those very tangible things, or there's just this sense of well, it would it's right to try to live well. You can't take your own life, but it, it's a it's a gut thing. There's no external, um, there's no external hope or eschatological hope, frankly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that conversation that we had was also very interesting of what do you, what, how do you think if you're in this position, how do you think of hope knowing that if you, especially as a father, if you do not do this well, you condemn your son to a, mm. uh, a life in which he's enslaved, in which he's um, taken mm. literally as food for the next uh, roving group that comes through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. And, my understanding, you know, a popular reading of McCarthy in, in this book is, I don't know if popular is the right word, but a possible reading is this kind of critique of faith and hope as, as um, um, vanity, I suppose, in the Ecclesiastes sense, you know, where it, like, what is the point of living in hope when you get to the coast and there's nothing there? And this whole thing is a joke. And, you know, it's this charade that the pa- the father is kind of dragging his son along on. And um, so there's, there, there, you know, I think it's a definitely a reading that you can take that there's a latent critique of, of, faith and Christianity and the kind of eschatological systems that view the future as, as somehow better for what are may or may not be arbitrary reasons. Um, yes so, no. but, but uh, yeah, I'm, I, not, I'm not saying I, I, I was just fascinated knowing that about the book yes. and then hearing that you're kind of com- in conversation in this book club with believers and some who are not, did that yeah. come up at all? Uh, yes. What's interesting is that the father's narration to the son about hope it's described. There's this line that appears occasionally of we're carrying the fire. It's not necessarily defined, but it's the sense of we have chosen the good path in the midst of this horror. But what's interesting, and this did come up is you don't know the son eventually becomes the carrier of hope. Like he is narrating back to his father, but we are the, first of all, we are the good guys. Right. And, and is, Mm. is 
as his father becomes more and more despairing, knowing his own death will affect his son. But what's interesting is you don't know if the hope of the child is the naivete of of childhood or if it's actually genuine because there's something you want it to be genuine as the reader. You want this intangible hope that there's no explanation for why this child should continue to carry on his own when even his parental figure is struggling to. But on one hand, you can say it's simply the innocence of childhood that can see what's good when it's not immediately apparent, or it's actually a genuine deposit of some kind of faith that will carry him through even to adulthood. Yes. Wow. Wow. I've just been um, working back through the, we did a, a cycle with our fellows on hope a couple of years ago in uh, more that yeah, about a year and a half ago, I guess we were in that and um, just finish up the bulletin of ecclesial theology, editing the, the articles for that. And it's been fascinating to go back over those and just see an observation that we made along the way of the New Testament. Hope is very rarely, if ever, an imminent mm-hmm. thing. Hoping for something in time is not a very mm-hmm. common yeah. biblical theme. It's rooted in the eschaton, which then gives us the way that we walk in this world but that's it's always a, an eschatological transcendent um, uh, concept, and yeah. so I, I, you know, listening to you talking about this, that just brought the, that yeah. back to mind. That the biblical vision of hope is rooted in Christ. It's rooted in the that which is to be delivered, that which is yet to come, yeah. that then shapes the way that we walk the road of discipleship and how we handle the existence or non-existence of little hopes or or perhaps you call them wishes along the way of I'm, Mm, I'm wishing for this very immediate thing. Yeah. 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 Ray, I'm going to ask a nerdy question. Well, not a nerdy, a kind of pathetic question. Have you seen the movie, the road? I have not. I, I I was just wondering how it compares to the book. Ray doesn't do that. I I, she doesn't. I I know know she's a purist. Uh, no, I have to give enough space. Once I've read a book, I actually need at least half a year before I'm going to watch a movie. Otherwise, I get very frustrated at the movie. But so, I, I know the movie was well-received in its own right. Well, okay, it was. That's interesting. Well. Yes, yes. Because I, I have seen the movie. I've not read the book, True Confession. That will not surprise anyone on this call or anybody <laughs> listening listening to the podcast. But now I that Todd doesn't read. read. He just doesn't read fiction. Yeah, so I am really inspired to read this. And, and these kinds of dystopian sorts of books will keep probably rivet my attention, particularly if it's super well-written, like you're describing. But, I will yeah. warn you, it doesn't have chapter breaks. So oh, similar, to Gilead, similar oh, to Gilead, there's mercy. no chapter breaks. There's Ooh. occasional inner dialogue, but he, he cuts it off before it becomes just an inner monologue. He, he's incredibly well done in that respect. If he knows when Amazing. to stop and yeah. Get back on the road. Todd, yeah. if you, we're, we got a transition here. I'm yeah, going yeah, to Todd yeah, yeah, and yeah, I'm going to give a parting, a parting recommendation. If you're intrigued by the dystopian kind of vibes and as well as the kind of political commentary stuff, you got to read yes. Handmaid's Tale. Go to oh, the- I've never read Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. I took that- the book club to that too. Is yeah. that, is that, is that a good one? It is. It, yeah. It's a, it's a, um, Provocative and stimulating read for sure. Okay, it's a um, fascinating narrative okay. on consent at a, a base level. Yes, so I, well done. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating, Mike. Okay, Todd. What do you What this do you got? Good. Um, it wouldn't be one of these conversations if we don't just harangue Todd for never reading fiction, <laughs> <laughs> or if I didn't have something that relates to politics that I'm yes, reading. Speaking of, that was <laughs> so I I read um, Jim Belcher's book Cold Civil War. Subtitle: Overcoming Polarization, Discovering Unity, and Healing the Nation, published by IVP. Um, really good book, uh, really impressive book. And I first came across Jim Belcher 10 years ago, probably. He wrote a, a very good book. In fact, it won a CT Book of the Year Award, I think, or one of the categories anyways, um, for his book called Deep Church, which was during the emergent church movement. And he was kind of doing a both and approach like let's not do this let's not do that let's do deep church it, it, was, a, it was a very good book um and, and very thoughtful he was a pastor presbyterian pastor in california and then he was the president of, of a very small reformed liberal arts college in pasadena called providence christian college for a couple of years four or five years uh and has stepped down recently maybe like in 2021 or 2022 uh and i'm not sure what he's what he's doing now um, but he's fascinating because he, he, his background is he has a PhD in political theory from Georgetown. So he's a serious, bona fide, straight up trained political philosopher who has spent his life in the pastor theologian space doing academic work and, and so on and so forth and, and church leadership. But the book is fantastic. The book is very ambitious he is trying to give a new framework for how to think about polarization and what's driving polarization, uh, what's what's driving polarization, what's pulling the country apart in a variety in, in the different directions it's being pulled apart, uh, and then also casting vision or gesturing in the direction of a of a way forward to you know uh, what what would a framework that can unify the country look like. Um, so, so that's, that's the context Yeah, Joel, you're going to say something. I was just going to ask what, what I know you've been, you've been reading a lot about polarization and thinking a lot about this. What did he bring to the table yeah. that, that yeah. maybe was insightful did, for you? Did he fix yeah, it? Yeah. So <laughs> say it again, Zach. Did he fix it? Uh, <laughs> I, I, he's, I, I am very sympathetic with the project he is setting up. And the gist of it is we have lost the vital center in America. We've lost the vital center. We've lost what folks a generation ago called the pu a public philosophy or what Robert Bella called in a very famous book from, a, from 30 or 40 years ago, uh, our civil religion. That is to say this kind of fusion of biblical, like Judeo-Christian themes as well as civic Republican themes that you see in the founders you see is sort of shaped the country kind of constitutionalism with a dash of natural law with a dash dash of, of classic kind of Greek and Roman Republicanism yeah. and civic virtue and, and biblical religion. You have all these different things kind of coming together, these streams of tradition coming together in this thing called America as an idea as an experiment, as a project that is the core of who we are, kind of declaration of independence and constitution sort of stuff. That's the vital center. That's our, been our civil religion. Uh, that's been our public philosophy that's been unifying, despite all the differences between left and right, Democrats, Republicans, and so on and so forth. This has been the unifying center. And that mm -hmm. thing persisted until, I think people would say, sort of the 50s and 60s, when the Enlightenment 
foundation of a lot of that got undermined philosophically. Um, and we have been pulling apart in different directions ever since then. So he lays all of that out and he has a whole framework for thinking about, you know, you have the vital center that gave some unity to the country and then that has been undermined. And now we're getting pulled in, he would say four different directions. So rather than left and right, merely, he talks about left and right and order and freedom. So it's like a two by two grid. Mm -hmm. Um, so you've got like freedom people on the right and freedom people on the left. You've got order people on the right, order people on the left. And all of those people are pulling out from the center. So he's got like degrees of intensification and pulling away from the vital center. So you would have, for example, on the order right, you would have alt-right, which would be the kind of the extreme version of, of people on the right end of the political spectrum that are insisting on order. And they're actually going in an illiberal direction. They're very far extreme. Yeah. Just back from that, you'd have someone like a Rod Dreher um, in his way of thinking about things. Or on the freedom left side, um, you'd have 1960s um, cultural and sexual revolution liberals on the left for freedom. And then you'd have more extreme versions of that, which would be um, like critical race theory, Black Lives Matter in his way of talking about things. Much more extreme kind of postmodern infused deconstructionist approaches to stuff that's post-liberal even. Um, so it's a, it's a mark. That's the heart wow. of the book. The beginning of the book is laying out like the vital center. We've lost the vital center. The heart of the book is in this big taxonomy where he go, it has a chapter for all of these different. And then the end of the book is gesturing in the direction of how do we recover this vital center? And the punchline is it's very creative. He says, you know, in that two by two matrix, right, where you got freedom, order and left and right, you got four squares, therefore, you know, right in this grid or circle, you might say, in the center of this grid. He says each one of those squares contributes something to the vital center. So you've got like this, what he calls souls, four souls of America's um, vital center. The statesman's soul embodied in Lincoln, the middle class soul or a sort of bourgeois capitalist sort of thing, which is embodied in or characterized by Adam Smith, the um, Republican soul that you see captured in Thomas Jefferson uh, and then the constitutional soul you see ca captured in someone like James Madison. And those are the four streams of tradition that are the vital center that, that we're, we've lost a grip on. Uh, so it's, it's a super, super interesting book. He's got a really nice quote on page 25 that I'll read you. Um, because one of the things he does is he, is he talks about why are, well, let me read the, let me read the quote. It's a question. He says this, why is the evangelical church so ill-equipped to provide leadership in times of national crisis? Why are so many pastors unable to help their congregations think through so many tough civil and cultural issues? It's a brilliant question, I think. Mm -hmm. And his answer is because we don't have a public philosophy as evangelicals. And there's some theological reasons for that and some cultural reasons for that, some probably some even some ecclesial reasons for that. Um, but the gist of it is we don't have a well-developed political uh, or public philosophy. That is to say a way of thinking about the American experiment, government, um, civility, um, you know, all these kinds of things, um, po a political philosophy that, that helps us know how to navigate well 
um, the, you know, the challenges that we see in our country. So it's a fantastic book. I could keep blabbing on forever, but it's a really, really, really profound book. It's one of those books where you can tell, you know, there's a PhD from Georgetown who's kind of writing this book has <laughs> been pent up for a long time, I suspect. And the dismount is like a 10 in degree of difficulty, right? So I don't know that he perfectly executed on it because he's trying to cover so much material and it's such an ambitious project. But for people who really want to deep dive in a lot of different stuff, it's it's quite, quite impressive book. So, and Jim, if you're listening to this, shoot me an email. I would love to get together and, and chat because I, th- I think uh, there's a lot I could learn from you. And uh, there's a ton that would be fun to talk about. So, <laughs> well, that sounds fascinating. And we could fall so far down a rabbit hole on that. <laughs> we, could. we will not. Uh, in the interest of time, Joel, why don't you uh, wrap us up, bring us home here? Yeah, we'll save falling down that rabbit hole for our team meeting later on, where we will <laughs> undoubtedly spend like an hour of our two hour meeting talking about these things and not get yes. done what we what we need to get done, but that's part yes. of the fun. So uh, my book is uh, by a woman named Angela Deanhart Hancock, and the title is Carl Bart's Emergency Homiletic 1932-1933. So if we all have our lanes, we are all firmly in our lanes on this podcast. I oh mean, my this, gosh. Is, this is just, uh, you know, very much to form on brand. Uh, the, the subtitle is a summons to prophetic witness at the dawn of the third Reich. So um, wow. the context for me reading this is we're moving into this new phase in our in our uh, life as a CPT with the Lilly grant that we've talked about here before on the podcast. And we're going to do a three year cycle thinking about the context of preaching, uh, or preaching in the context of a theology of word, spirit and church. So year one is a theology of the word, which means we're going to be uh, bringing in some consultants and doing some thinking in kind of the Protestant tradition on the theology of the word. And one of the key players of that, of course, is Karl Barth. Um, And this book is, it was recommended to me by one of the consultants that we've reached out to, to to come in. And I wasn't aware of it before, nor was I aware of the, the subject matter, which is in 1932, 1933, Karl Barth was teaching theology at the, at the university of Bonn in Germany He's seeing all that's coming together, the end of the Weimar Republic, the rise, uh, the churn of the culture, the rise of the Nazi party. And he decides as a theologian to hold a series of, of lectures on, on preaching, on homiletics, which wasn't his thing. There was another guy who was the, the homiletics professor. So he, Karl Barth writes this guy a letter and says, I want you to know that I'm going to do this. And this is why I'm going to do this and <clears throat> holds these series of lectures and what the book does really, really well is puts these kind of series of lectures that Bart gave in a in the big historical theological context of Bart. So she goes back through wow. his theological career, kind of tracing him through Romans one and Romans two, and then into his teaching in the twenties and kind of how his theology was developing, all rooted, of course, in his pastoral life in Soffenville, Switzerland, where the, the theme of the sermon really became the, the challenge of his pastoral and theological life. How do you stand up and say, thus says the Lord? And so for Bart, you know, one of the things he says constantly throughout is the purpose, the sermon is the endpoint of theology. This is 
wow. what theology is about and, and rooting theology in the life of the church and in the pastor, which is something that we're all on about here at the CPT is, is, is very uh, vital to understanding Bart. My, my other, my favorite book on Bart is William Willimon's conversations with Bart on preaching. And I think it's because he's, he gets what Bart is doing. He's not just approaching Bart kind of as a systematic theologian. He approaches Bart through the lens of preaching, which really is the way into Bart's theology and in his, his whole theological project. So, so uh, Hancock does a really nice job of laying out that context, laying out the context of the Weimar Republic, laying out all these different streams. And then what she does is she takes through each of the seminars, each of the kind of days that he was teaching, unpacks what he's doing there, and puts that in the immediate historical context because there's a whole lot going on. In the fall of 32, Hitler comes to power in January of 33. He's doing this series of lectures through that through that time. And I think it's it's really, really a helpful book. One for understanding Bart and his theology, two for the project that we're moving through, starting to move through is the CPT. And then three, really contextualizing 21st century preaching. A lot of the stuff that he is critiquing in his theology. In his vision of preaching is stuff that we have to really wrestle with in our own time. And so, um, yeah, I, I found it to be a really fascinating book. I just, I got it last week and kind of cranked through it over the weekend here. And it was uh, one that I really en- enjoyed, appreciated, and uh, would highly recommend. Well, I guess we'll, <laughs> again... We can, the the hard thing about these is not just, like I said previously, just completely falling down the rabbit hole. Um, so thank you all. Uh, that sounds like, sounds. So I have a, I have a yeah. suggestion. Yeah, please. What we should do for the next one is each assign someone else a book from, from our lane and yes. then have, have someone read a book out of, you know, make sure we're getting our, we need to get ourselves out of our own lanes. And I, I think that would also create some nice dynamics. Well, I think there's also a tendency to selectively, uh, you know, pick what you're going to talk about in the, in the books that you feel like are most within your lane. So maybe more accessible would be the challenge of pick a book that you read that you actually don't feel as qualified to talk about. Um, so that that would accomplish the same, the same goal. There you go. All right. Well, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun as always. Hope, uh, listeners find this helpful. And we'll see you again on here before too long. Thanks all. See you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the CPT podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you appreciated this episode, could I ask you to consider sharing it online with others, rating the show on Apple Podcasts, or even leaving a review? Uh, It means a lot to us, and it helps others hear about the show. The CPT Podcast is a production of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor is Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.